Good morning. This morning's reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and we're reading verses 1 through to 19, and that's on page 1085, if you happen to have a pew Bible with you. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the creation of the world. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your powerful and life-giving word. And we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to speak to us and to help me as I speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but you can tell a lot about a person by how they pray. To be honest with you, when I pray, it's often because I've got a problem that I want God to help me with. So I'm going into a meeting, uh, visiting someone who's sick maybe, uh, giving someone advice, and I kind of just fire up this shotgun prayer to God. God, please help me with that. One time when I was single, I remember uh, praying that God would give me a Jesus-loving, absolutely gorgeous and intelligent wife. And literally two weeks later, I met Nikki, so that prayer was answered anyway. 
I don't think I've ever prayed for a car parking space, but basically, if I'm honest, so often my prayers are transactional. I say, God, I've got this problem, and would you help me with it? And there's nothing wrong with that in itself, but occasionally you meet someone who makes you sit up and pay attention by the way that they pray. For me, I think of my grandma before she died. Uh, She was one of the most loving and remarkable people I've ever met, and she was pretty much the reason that uh, Christianity um, came into our family. Uh, She converted to Christ uh, as an adult in her 40s, and uh, I will never forget uh, the joy and expectation that she had in the face of death, Um, the certainty she had that she was going to be with the Lord, and the way that she prayed was special. And uh, she wrote me um, a letter for me to read after she died as a teenager. And uh, I have it with me here. And what really struck me was her certainty that her prayers for me and my family um, would continue to have an impact in our lives after her death. And she finished that letter by quoting Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, when it says this, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why am I telling you all of this? Because you can tell a lot about a person by how they pray. And I think that's because prayer reveals the heart. Prayer reveals the heart. And in this utterly glorious and beautiful passage in John chapter 17. Jesus is about to be crucified and right before he gets arrested, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays. And as he prays, he shows us his heart. And it's like he pulls back the curtain on eternity and says, this is how things really are. This is who I really am. And so it's a bit like we need to put on an oxygen mask. When you're climbing Mount Everest, there comes a point where you're taken so high that you can't go further without oxygen. And with this passage, it's like Jesus looks us in the eye, hands us the oxygen mask and says, let me take you higher. Let me show you that there's more to prayer than that transactional approach. And that's why the title for today's message is With Jesus Um, in the school of prayer, with Jesus in the school of prayer. And Jesus teaches, I think, that prayer is about um, G-O-D, glory, ownership, and defense. Glory, ownership, and defense. So firstly, that prayer is about glory. So in verse one, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son may glorify you. Now, what is glory? Glory is a very churchy, religious-sounding word, isn't it? And it's easy for for us to just skip past it. But the Greek word for glory is doxa, and it means to praise or to celebrate or to hold in honour and esteem. I love this definition of glory from one of the commentaries. It says, to glorify means to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. 
To glorify means to cause the dignity and worth of some personal thing to become manifest or acknowledged. In other words, when Jesus prays to be glorified, this isn't some vain request for self-promotion. It's a request that his incredible dignity and majesty is clarified and honored. Father, the hour has come, glorify your son. Notice the order in that sentence. Jesus says the hour has come, and in that context of that hour, he asks to be glorified. Now, whenever Jesus speaks about his hour in the Gospel of John, he's talking about his suffering and crucifixion. And so, in other words, Jesus is directly connecting his glory um, with the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything less glorious than being betrayed by your friends, falsely accused, whipped, and nailed to a piece of wood. How is that glorious? And it's the scandal of the gospel in many ways, isn't it? Jesus is saying, essentially, if you want to see what divine glory looks like, look at my hour, look at my cross. And so this is absolutely scandalous right off the bat, isn't it? How, you might think, can the cross display the glory of God? The cross displays the glory of God because it's where atonement happened. The cross displays the glory of God because it's where our debt to God, our sins, were paid for. It displays the glory of God because it's the place that made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And it's the place where the curse of sin and death was wiped out permanently. And so as Jesus teaches us about prayer here, he's basically saying, when you think of God's glory, when you're praying, just don't think just in terms of like, you know, clouds and angel song. There's definitely something of that in scripture for sure. But here I think Jesus is saying, Think more of the hidden and powerful glory of the cross. It's teaching us that this is actually something that we can celebrate and enjoy in prayer. That's what glorifying means. We can rejoice in the one who revealed his glory in the cross. We can rejoice in the one who gives us eternal life through the cross. It's teaching that the best and most exuberant and joyful kind of prayer is not the transactional kind of prayer that we usually pray. God, please help me with this. It's when we pray, Jesus, I long to see you glorified. Jesus, I long to see you honored and lifted high. And there's a special kind of freedom and joy that comes when you pray like that and when your eyes are off yourself. Because prayer is about glory. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So notice there, Jesus says there's a connection, a mutual connection between the advancement of his glory and the advancement of the glory of the Father. And therefore, it's impossible to say, I follow God, but I don't honor his son. If you're here and you're exploring Christianity, Jesus is saying that option is impossible. There is no honoring of God where there is no honoring of Jesus. There is an absolutely exclusive 
and challenging claim that Jesus is making here. And that's reinforced in verse 2 when he says that he is the only one with the authority to actually give eternal life. But let's get practical for a minute. How can what Jesus says here about glory, how does that actually help us to pray? It can help us in a huge way, I think, because God's eternal glory reminds us that as Christians, we stand in a victory that is permanent, ongoing, and irreversible. And if that's not an encouragement to pray bold and faith-filled prayers, then I don't know what is. In verse 5, Jesus prays, Father, it's an absolutely remarkable prayer, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now just think about what he's saying there for a moment. Because all glory in this life is temporary. So Manchester United might win the the league one year, but the next year it just resets. You know, one candidate wins The Apprentice this year, but the next year it starts all over again. There is no lasting glory in this life. There is no lasting victory in this life. But with God and because of Jesus and his death and resurrection, the glory um, we are brought into as Christians is eternal, ongoing, and completely irreversible. There's a line in many of the prayer books that expresses this that says, glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And then it says, as it was in the beginning, is now and shall be forever. And that's what Jesus is getting at. The cross and resurrection of Jesus are not some ancient events that we just look back to. They're towering realities. He is a towering reality that undergirds the history of the universe. And when our prayer is energized and informed by that fact, we become, I want to submit to you, more grounded and centered people. We become more prayerful and trusting of God when that glory is before our eyes because you see that you stand in a glory that is permanent, ongoing, and can't be taken away from you. And that breeds an incredible security and steadiness. At one point, Jesus is so taken up with the glory of the Father that his whole sort of language of past, present, and future merges into one And he begins to talk about his death and resurrection almost as if it's already happened. So he says in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. This is before his crucifixion, before his resurrection. It's like he's so taken up with his destiny to be glorified and to bring glory to the Father that he says nothing will cause him to swerve from obeying the Father. And therefore, it's as if the cross and resurrection are already a done deal. Almost as if the closer you get to seeing God's glory, to seeing eternal realities, the more certain and resolved you become in following God's purpose, even when it hurts. And it enables you to say with confidence Uh, In the words of Romans chapter 8, that nothing, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, that is the perspective and the prayer of someone who has understood God's glory. So prayer is about glory, but this passage also teaches, I think, that prayer is also about ownership. That is knowing that we've been individually chosen by the Father and given to Jesus. So in verse 6, Jesus speaks of those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So Jesus knows that the Father has given the disciples individually and specifically to him. And that's why Jesus is able to express this incredible confidence that in verse 18, that even though he's about to to be completely abandoned by the disciples and betrayed by them and let down, that's how he's able to express confidence that they will come back to him and that they will go on to live fruitful lives serving God afterwards. And all the way through this passage, there's this repetition of this phrase, those you have given me. Those you have given me. It's all through the passage and it's teaching this. If God has called you, he will not and cannot let you go. There may be times when God lets his children turn their backs on him for a season and believe me, I've been there. But sooner or later, God always brings his children back to him. Because we're not customers who have sort of picked up the product of salvation and taken it to the till ourselves. No, we're sons and daughters of a loving and sovereign heavenly father who chose us before the foundation of the world to be his children. As Jesus says it earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, verse 65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And Jesus clarifies in this passage that part of prayer is about um, ownership, knowing that we've been chosen by the Father and given to Jesus and that we belong to him. And in verse 9, he goes on to unpack that. He says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Now, there are all sorts of debates about things like predestination and election. I don't know if those words mean anything to you, and I don't have time to get into the theological debate about those issues right now, but I would simply say this. Don't rob yourself of the intimate joy of knowing that you are loved and chosen by your heavenly Father. Because here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that while everything might conspire to snuff out the light of the gospel in your life, it cannot succeed ultimately because God chose you, God loves you, and God has called you by name to know him. And when you know that you are chosen by the Father and given to Jesus, it encourages a special kind of freedom and openness and intimacy in prayer. Because it communicates that we aren't coming before a distant God to try to twist his arm. You know, that's just not our situation if we're Christians. We're coming before our Heavenly Father as his precious chosen children. And knowing that has the power to sweeten prayer for us, to sweeten our intimacy with God in such a special way. 
Because think many of you have children, and children don't hesitate, do they, to come before their parents? I love that story of, I think it was President Abraham Lincoln, but I'm not sure which president it was, and uh, where someone had been waiting outside uh, the White House for hours to try and see the president. And uh, just before they were about to give up, um, the president's five-year-old son appeared and said, "Uh, uh, who are you waiting for? And the man explained, I'm waiting to see uh, the president. And the boy said, oh, he's my dad. And so he takes him by the hand and walks him past all of the security guards, all of the checkpoints right up to the Oval Office and just barges right in there holding this guy's hand. And he says, hi, Dad, this this man wants to speak to you. And that is the kind of privileged and awesome access and confidence that we can have when we approach our Heavenly Father in prayer. It's what he wants for us. And that leads into my third point, that prayer is also about defense. So all the way through this passage, Jesus prays words of defense and protection for the disciples and for us as well. So in verse 11, he says, um, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. And then a bit later, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. And then verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. Or verse 15, my prayer is not that you will take them out of the world, but that you will, what? Protect them from the evil one. Jesus is teaching that prayer is about knowing the defense and the protection of God. Now, I like what Robert Murray McChain says when he puts it like this. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me, in the very next room. I wouldn't fear a million enemies. And yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Now, I think if I'm honest, I think if we're honest, most of us are functional atheists on this point of Jesus' prayers of protection and defense for his people. I am anyway. Because my hunch is, if I really and genuinely and actually believed that Jesus has prayed and continues to pray in heaven for me, I would never be anxious or worried again. And I say that as someone who does struggle sometimes with anxiety. I was reading the other day that now in London, over 50% of the population battle with an anxiety disorder of some description. And what an incredible promise we have here of a gentle and merciful saviour who prays these words of defence and protection over my life and over your life. Now, the protection Jesus prays for here doesn't mean the absence of pain or trouble, but it means being strengthened so that you can stand firm in the midst of trouble and stay faithful to Jesus in the midst of trouble. The last two years have taken a huge toll on all of us. I know many wise and experienced and godly leaders who have said to me, I've never had to navigate a time of such prolonged uncertainty, unknowns and stress. The last two years will have taken a massive toll on all of us. And as I talk about knowing the protection of God, you might hear that and think, well, that sounds like nice, religious, churchy-sounding language, but the bottom line is that God didn't protect me. 
You know, you might think God didn't protect me when I completely burned out. You know, God didn't protect me when I was crushed with depression. God didn't protect me when I found out I'd got cancer. You know, I don't know what it is for you. So what use are these prayers of Jesus for my protection if they don't protect me from these things? What's the point? I understand that question and that feeling. But remember this, Jesus himself was not spared trouble and pain. He went all the way to the cross so that when you and I face trouble and suffering, that you can know he's standing with you in your suffering, that he understands. And these prayers of defense that Jesus speaks over your life, they aren't a guarantee of an easy and pain-free life, but they are a powerful promise that God will not and cannot leave you alone in what you are facing. And knowing God's defense means knowing that even if everything else gives way beneath your feet, that he's with you and that he will see you through what you're facing. Shall we pray? Psalm 91 says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and for who he is for us. Help us to pray like him. Help us to be so captured with your glory so sure of your ownership, of your choosing of us, so sure of your defense and protection that we would live courageously and faith-filled lives for you. And Lord, I want to ask that where the strain of the last two years has taken its toll, that you would bring by your spirit renewal and refreshment to us, that the river of life would flow afresh in our lives In Jesus' name, amen.